Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, to True Crime Uncensored, America's premier true crime podcast. For 15 years now, haven't changed a thing, not even the light bulbs. Yeah, that's Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker. On the phone, Frank C.G. Jr. I'm Burl Bearer. And uh, Frank, I thought you'd like uh, like to know that I've managed to convince Mark that you and I are true crime experts because we write true crime books and we've won awards and stuff. So he's going to interview us and ask us important questions about true crime. All right? Well, I, like, I like this topic. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Burl. You're welcome. Uh, yeah, I'm calling myself an expert, uh, you know. Yeah, I'll call you one. Well, you know. What are the questions you want to ask our brilliant guest and your brilliant uh, host? A very learned individual I was working with told me writing is less about writing and more about planning. I mean, I'll I just jump right in. You know, um, if you're writing, uh, say, a daily news story for a newspaper or some other outlet, you, uh, you know, you got to do it right away. So you call five or six people, one calls you back, you've got to kind of put it together and that's that. But, you know, when you're writing, like, a long-form uh, true crime book or planning out, you know, uh, say, a true crime podcast, um, you, I think that the key is, like, getting all your ducks in a row, understanding everything, the relationships, how things fit together, and then once you have that, you can, you can put it together. And, you know, by the way, with that news story that I talked about, those five or six people that don't call you back on that first day you know, you might just keep tracking them down for a couple of days or a week or a month before you finally get a hold of them. And then, man, does that yield some gold. So, yeah. uh, research, 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 and more research. Uh, and that's not always easy. Because, uh, I mean, a, a true crime book, you can't make it up. You can't have interior dialogue. You can't say what people are thinking unless they told you what they were thinking. You can't break that fourth wall like Truman Capote did. No, you, you can't do that. Uh, you can. Yeah, you, you can, but you can't call true crime. Yeah. Uh, people say, oh, uh, In Cold Blood is a great true crime book. No, no, it's not a true crime book. It's, it's, a, great, great, it's yeah, a great novelization. Novel, but story. it's not a true crime book. Yeah. Uh, so if you're going to get the facts, you're going to get as much information as possible. You're going to want to get police reports, uh, legal documents, depositions. Now, in some states, such as Kansas... If you file under Freedom of Information, you want police reports, you get the cover page. That's it. Anything else, anything with substance is at the discretion of the chief of police. If he likes you, you'll get the information. Otherwise, you just get the cover sheet, which is why I have not written a book about a true crime case in Kansas. Then maybe they like it that way. <laughs> yes. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know. Uh, I think documents are super important. Um, but I, also talking to people is important. Um, you know, you, uh, one of the nice things about like doing a true crime thing is that when somebody talks to you, you don't have to like, you know, go through 25 minutes of an interview and pick out the one sentence that sums it all up. You can sometimes use all 25 minutes of it yeah. and, um, and, you know, really flesh out a narrative. That's uh um, you know, I think something that's underappreciated. Um, in some cases, in other cases, you know, if you have something that happened, say, uh, 20 or 30 years ago, 
I, I would argue that interviewing somebody who participated in it is not going to yield the best information about what happened. Time has um, colored, the, colored their remembrance? Yeah. A, a good example I have of that is uh, I was going to work with a guy on a book about this uh, bank robbery that happened in Norco, California in 1980. And so I uh, did a lot of research I was able to track down all the cop, former cops and the, the guys that had been involved in the bank robbery. And um, this, these court documents, massive volumes of my 280 boxes. And, and a lot of the boxes contained transcripts um, that, uh, you know, were absolutely fascinating, but most importantly, contemporaneous transcripts. You know, people remembering exactly what happened because they were so close to the moment. Um, and the guy I was working with didn't want to go, didn't want to have anything to do with the transcripts. He wanted to put the story together based on what people remembered of what happened 30 years later. And, um, you know, I, I, just don't, I just don't think that that, you know, yields the best possible uh, narrative. I, you know, I just don't. Now what's um, going to happen, and that there actually is a book on this very topic, uh, and that is misinformation gets quoted in somebody else's book because they read this misinformation in your book, and it gets perpetuated. Oh, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah that, you know that happens a lot. That that happens a lot. I mean, we can, you can, um, yeah, I just millions of examples of. But I mean, just look at forget true crime. Look at what's happening in the world today. I mean, some, some jackass puts a meme up on their Facebook page with, you know, loaded with inaccurate and, you know, potentially um, seditious information, and suddenly every asshole on Facebook is sharing it. As though it's the gospel. Yeah. So besides Burl Bear picking up the phone and saying, Hi, Frank, I got a book. Let's work on mm -hmm. it. How do you, how do you uh, choose what you're going to write about? That's a great question, Mark. Um, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm often fascinated by the, you know, things that are usual, but, but unusual. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I keep a, but what I do is I keep a file of things that like kind of tickle my, you know, tickle my interest. Um, like for example, example, uh, I've got probably, I would say 10 or maybe 15 even ideas uh, stuff to write if uh, if Bill decides that he doesn't want to work together, um, and and I'm often like gathering string for those ideas and like just putting them in like folders, so that eventually, um, you know, I can turn to that one, the next one, and do it. Um, I, I've noticed lately that a lot of stuff that I write about uh, has some sort of a nexus with 1985 in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? So, I don't know. It's like weird to be like, re, re, you know, like um, uh, Ken. Ken and I were working on a follow-up to Betrayal in Blue, and you and I are working on a on an even better book about the Russian mob. And every time I go through documents, 
there's always something that leads back to 1985. And um, I, uh, I started like gathering all those strings and I looked at it and it's like, okay, Night Stalker happened in 85. Moon Sleeper happened in 85. Clark Rockefeller happened in 85. That's just three. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, so I decided like, hey, this would be a great book. But I don't really have the time to write it right now because Bill and I are really in the midst of this thing that we're working on. So I asked my wife, I said, hey, how about we do a podcast just about L.A. 1985? And, uh, you know, it took some cajoling because she hates the 80s. But, um, <laughs> she doesn't want to walk the dinosaur? <laughs> she, yeah, you know, she, like, she, looks, she thinks the fashion's weird, the people are weird, and, yeah, and definitely anybody that was around them is a dinosaur. So, um, yeah, so, so we started it though. And, you know, and, uh, it, it, it's like, it's really weird. Like every, even a lot of the stories that are happening today have some intersection with LA and 85. Um, so, so we're, uh, slowly but surely making our way through the year, um, talking about a lot of this stuff. It, it's, it's really interesting. And of course, you know, uh, in a lot of these true crime stories, Mark, um, the, uh, I'm, I'm more fascinated by the older stuff, like stuff that happened in another era. Um, because the, the amount of information that you can get is greater and, and more nuanced than the stuff that you would get from something that happened more contemporaneously. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, so for example, uh, there's this case about a guy that uh, was a serial killer back in uh, the early part of the 20th century. And he was in L.A. and they called him Bluebeard. Because, you know, he, he was kind of the opposite of Angie, this woman that Burl and I wrote about in A Taste for Murder, uh, in that... You know, he's a man, first of all. Yeah, there's a tiny <laughs> difference, yeah. <laughs> yeah, a big difference. And the beard. But, uh, <laughs> second of all, uh, unlike Angie, who, you know, killed and, and got insurance money uh, once for sure, twice possibly, uh, this guy was doing it, in a, um, you know, multiple times to multiple victims. And um, it was really, the, the to me... What makes it interesting isn't that this is one of the mill serial killer case. It's that it's the first time it's documented in in California, maybe in the U.S., where law enforcement said we got we have a a serial predator, and how are we going to you know put our resources together to you know track this person down and um, connect all these dots? So um, we, we got to have that. I think that secondary drama. That takes you know that takes place outside of just the oh there was a bloodletting and um, it was really bad. So it sounds like um, for for you, um, it's uh, just being aware of what's happening around you as you do your daily work. You file tidbits away for later. Burl, on the other hand, it, looks, <laughs> it sounds like from the time with him that he follows the old. Uh, adage, you know, write what you know. Because he does a lot of Seattle crime. Well, I did Seattle crimes because I was living there. Yes, but something you know. <laughs> well, I didn't know the crimes particularly. I mean, I fell into this like a clean kid into a coal chute. 
my agent calls one day and says, Kensington's looking for a, an author to write a true crime book about a case in Alaska. And my big question was, is there a check attached? <laughs> and she said, yes. And I said, I am the man for the job. There's no no writer between heaven and earth as qualified as I am. So do you do you pick the projects or do they come to Well, you? that particular one, they, my, the agent had this incredible story about Kirby Anthony who tragically murdered his aunt and two little kids. And that became, so far, my first New York Times bestseller, Murder in the Family. And so that made Kensington very happy, of course, to have a New York Times bestseller and promptly signed me to a multi-book contract uh, for low money, <laughs> but high prestige. Well, you know, you're, but, you're uh, so, so I kind of felt, I mean, I wasn't a true crime reader before I started writing it. <laughs> but uh, to me, I was warned, uh, Gary, uh, Gary King, king of true crime, Gary C. King, when he heard I was writing his true crime book, we were uh, about Chicago, I guess. He said, be prepared to cry a lot. He says, you're going to have to talk to, like, the, uh, relatives, parents, siblings, and people who were brutally murdered, who were horribly raped and pillaged and God knows what else. And it's going to take this emotional toll on you. You have to be emotionally prepared to deal with some really horrible stuff. And I kept the pictures of those the two little girls that were murdered on my computer. So every day that I'm writing, I remember who I'm writing about. These are real people. You know, this isn't fiction. Yes. The real people with real families. Well, after that, then it's like, okay, what's... Uh, I would submit uh, two or three different uh, ideas to my editor at Kensington and say, okay, which one of these do you like the best? And they'd pick one. And go with it. Well, fortunately, up in the Northwest, I have the same kind of connections that Frank has down here, which I don't. But right. Frank does, God bless him. <laughs> he said, I knew I could I could call up the head of detectives in Tacoma, you know, and he'd give me everything. I could call the prosecutor's officer or the defense attorneys, and they'd cooperate with me. Right. Down here, I don't know anybody. Frank knows everybody. <laughs> so I picked well, the right that's guy. That's the last stuff. They're all dying. They're all dying off? Uh -huh. Yeah. And including us. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. So do, do you gentlemen think that je being writers in general helps with true crime? You're writers first. Yeah, I guess well, so. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, when you write, you like to, like, sort of get, I think, you know, you touched on this, is, like, get to that emotional connection. And, um, you know, that's a big part of writing. Uh, and so I think it's easier to do um, when, you know, it's a recognizable human emotion, like, you know, somebody's reaction to a, a horrible crime, than it is if you're making up a world of, you know, people you don't know and don't care about and, um, you know, trying to write some, uh, you know, narrative fiction. I, I think it's easier. I mean, my goal, me personally, my goal was always to like, because I was a journalist for a long time, and I loved uh, reading Dash Land. And my goal was always like, you go into something and learn it really well, like Dash Hammett did, and then like take the stories that you learn and turn them into fiction, like he did. He was a PI um, in, you know, in the Northwest and in San Francisco in the 1920s. And took a lot of the stories that, you know, that he 
got from being a PI into you know great crime fiction. But I never, I never, I just, I'm never able to do that. Uh, there's something about um, you know the the true stories I think that really strike me, and um, I I want them, you know, I want them to like touch the readers. I think a lot of times that we look at true crime, we go, oh, this, is, you know, you're writing this because it's purient or because oh, it's. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's because somebody's got a gore fixation or, uh, um, you know, all, all those other sorts of, uh, those things. And yet really, you know, you do it because you, you know, you want to get in touch with, you know, what happened to these people and their families. I mean, I think about like John Sellis, the guy that was murdered by, um, Clark Rockefeller in 85. And, uh, you know, I mean, he's just a slob. He's just a regular guy. <laughs> Yeah, um, and his family, you know, has spent the better part of, I don't know how long that is, now 35 years, I guess, 36 years, trying to, you know, trying to, like, reconnect with somebody that they hardly even knew, and they can't, because, you know, they're emotionally connected, but complete, but, uh, um, you know, disconnected by the years and by the fog of memory and all that stuff, and, um, yeah, and we try. I think in true crime writers, you try to bring all that back together. You know, like piece it together and make these people, make somebody like John Solis into a real life person. Um, yeah, well, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but it, one thing that does irk me is the degree of disdain directed at true crime writers. Uh, but I would say, oh, you're making money off of other people's misery. Of course, any book that just focuses on the blood and gore and doesn't get into why and how and what does this mean and put in some sort of context is basically just porno. Not that I don't enjoy porno, but... Well, you know, it's a different kind of porno. different kind of porno. So you both, you both kind of feel that you have a greater responsibility with true crime than other writing? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think it's important to not just tell the story. And sometimes people like this, sometimes people don't. i got to remind myself that is Michaela Hamilton at Kensington said to me one time when I was depressed. <laughs> she said, Burl, remember, you write books for people who like your books, yeah. not for the people who don't like them. I said, thank you. There are people who like them. That's why they buy them. <laughs> We're going to talk about that a little later. <laughs> you know, what's their mental illness might be? Uh, no. <laughs> but, um, uh, the, the point being is that uh, I want to put it in some sort of a context. If, I mean, I listen to people talk, and people have some really strange ideas. You know, they think, like, all homeless people are criminals and drug addicts, and, and all street kids are evil, and, you know, uh, all black people are bad, and all Jews are stingy. And, I mean, oh, my God, all Catholics are corrupt, you know? And I'm, I'm just amazed at the amount of people that have their heads filled with concrete, and, and a lot of them want to read true crime. If we can put a little bit of a rib spreaders of reality on these people's consciousness, we'll be doing them a huge favor. So uh, I always try to put in uh, the books I do myself, the ones that Frank and I do, try to put something in there that, that's hard, factual, cannot be disputed information about honest-to-God real life and what things are really like so that people can maybe get a, a broader sense of reality. Yeah, Bill, you know, Bill is really good at that. Um, we're, we're, I, we're working on a story that's like an exoneration sort of narrative. It's it's a, like a true true crime with a twist. 
And, um, you know, without going into a lot of details about it, you're gonna, I think when you read this book, you're going to come out at the end of it and wonder what happened. And uh, even though you think the answer is an easy one, it's not. But the thing is, it's like it takes place in, a, um, in, an, in a, uh, an era where there's a lot of ambiguity. Uh, and a lot of the, the people involved are, are sort of ambiguous, too. I mean, Burl just mentioned homelessness. There's a you know, homeless kid involved in this story. And, you know, I think people's first reaction to somebody who's homeless is to be, you know, like, what's wrong with you? You're a drug addict. You're, you know, you're a misfit. You're on the edge of society because you, you know, you're a square peg and you don't fit our round hole. And, you know, when you start to read this, you go, wow, this could be anybody. It could be my kid. Could be, could be me. And um, uh, I think that, you know, that's where true crime crosses the. the the boundary from being, you know, something that's there to, you know, titillate uh, with, uh, um, you know, violence uh, and something that's actually designed to inform. And, you know, like people, like you look at, uh, I like to like point to, you know, like sort of a Netflix documentary thing. You know, the most popular Netflix show was the, the one about this um, uh, Stephen Avery guy who, you know, the reason it was popular is because there was a probability that he didn't do it. And, of course, you know, and then there's the whole narrative about how the cops get to where they're going to arrest him through, you know, subterfuge and uh, um, bullying of, uh, of uh, Brendan Dassey. Mm-hmm. And those are the sorts of things I think that, uh, you know, they're but for the grace of God go live, right? That, um, that we can get to in these stories because, like, murder is the ultimate thing. It's like, you know, everything, every other course of events in your life is pretty much something you have control over, right? You know, yeah, I mean, to a point, I mean, you can get, get cancer, die of old age, but those are things you expect. Suicide, you're in control of it. Uh, uh, you, you know, but, but murder... Murder is something you don't control. It's something nobody else, people that, you know, on the outside can't really understand or grasp. It's the ultimate crime. And we're always looking for answers to these murders. You know, who did it? Why did they do it? You know, like a giant game of Clue. And sometimes it's, it's, sometimes the stupid thing is it's not a game of Clue. I mean, like, uh, you know, the the, the Angie uh, case, the case for murder, it's not a game of Clue. There's no, like, you know, uh, Mrs. Uh, Poindexter in the kitchen with the, yeah, uh, with the, the candles. The no, 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 no. It's, call, yeah, it's it, always Colonel Mustard in the rectory with the candles. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, I mean, this, this isn't really it. It's, you know, it's, 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 it's Angie in the bedroom with a, with a bottle of Gatorade and a, a handful of antifreeze. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, uh, and real suffering of the guy who's dying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, you mentioned that you thing know, about the ambiguity, which is something that I've always found fascinating, because it's the different perspectives and how people see things, and what they think is is real or what makes sense to them. I was watching again the uh, uh, the Robert Henry story uh, out of Tacoma, which uh, I appeared on the the show. It was on like motives and murders or something, 
The motive for the murder was one of the most stupid motives in the history of the world. He was murdered because of a disagreement on what was better or more fun, flying a plane or whatever the other thing was, riding a bike, I don't know. We got into a discussion on one guy was taking flying lessons and the other guy was doing something else for a hobby. And they disagreed on what was more fun or what was better. So the guy killed him. I mean, that's the most insane... I mean, not that there's a reasonable motive for murder, but I mean, I hear motives like that and go, oh my, he killed someone over a disagreement on were flying lessons better than skiing lessons or something? Wow. I mean, you know, and like if you're writing, you know, some narrative about that, you you know, when you get to that, like, climax, like, you still probably don't really know how you got there. Yeah. (laughs) It's just so strange. I like blue airplanes. I like red airplanes. Well, I like to ski. Well, you know. Yeah, well, then, like so much for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes people have punchable faces, you know. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I've seen a few of those. It, you know, and that's the, you know, that ends up being the, the, you know, what happened in that case. The guy had a punchable face. He got killed for it. Wow. Uh, which is an awful thing to say and, and you know, not very compassionate. But, uh, um, you know, you, you do try to see through the mind, through the eyes of, of others, I guess. Well, that's the thing with thin-faced babies. Thin-faced babies suffer more abuse than a fat-faced baby for that very reason. Really? Yeah. Because fat, round-faced babies that look like Dwight Eisenhower, they get all loving, squeezing. But if it's a thin-faced baby, they tend to be abused and mistreated. That's awful. Yeah, especially if you're the kid. Yeah, wow, that's awful. Yeah, I never, I never do that. So what? Um, I'm filled with all sorts of useless information. <laughs> you really are. You're, you're a font of useless information. Yeah. I, all right. So he's uh, he's Helvetica. What's that? That's a font. <laughs> the font Helvetica. Yeah. You. I'm, I'm, I'm courier. So you some of the some of these material that you work on could take years to plow through before you start sitting down to write your write the book. Um, how do you go about wading through all of that information? Because it is a lot of information. How do you go through and cherry pick what's going to go in, in the final book? I told you things that you're always learning. How do you do this? Um, as, as I mentioned, uh, Burl and I are working on a, on a book right now. And um, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of pages of documents to go through. And um, in, in, you get you, you get in a sometimes you find yourself going down a rabbit hole, like chasing something. Mm-hmm. And you come back and you go, wait a minute, I'm not going to find anything in this document. I need to track the people down and you know get them to explain to me what this document means. Um, and, and you go in circles. With, uh, with the, I, I did a book with uh, uh, on a firefighter who was an arsonist, and it's called Burned. And um, for Burned, I was able to obtain uh, eighty thousand pages of documents regarding this this guy, John War, and his career as a firefighter, and his second life as an arsonist. 
And you know, you get you get eighty thousand pages in these musty old boxes that have been sitting in a garage for months, and they they're not in any order. They're um, you know, they're they you could like say you go to box five and pull out the middle document. You could hit gold and go, oh wow, this is great! I finally got the thing I want. Or you could like, you know, neglect box one and then you get to the end of the book and you go, oh, if only I had this. And in fact, that's actually what happened. Um, I got all these boxes and uh, like I say, 80,000 pages. And with that, I got eight floppy disks, eight or nine floppy disks that purported to um, have a PDF of every page that was in those eight boxes. So, you know, being digitally minded, I thought, well, the easiest thing for me to do is to, you know, extract the data off these CDs and, you know, get them into a way where I can search them. And I did that. And, you know, got a pretty good book together. And, and just as I was getting to the end of the book, I just started to fish back in these boxes and I came across a, a yellow legal notepad that um, had not been a part of any of these CDs, had never been discussed in my interviews with the firefighter arsonist um, or his attorneys or any of the investigators. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, what is this? What is this thing? And it's, you know, it's fake. It's, it's uh, multiple pads, legal-sized pads. The drawings and so anyway, it turns out that this is the notes that uh, John Orr, the firefighter, had been keeping throughout his trial. These were his actual handwritten notes, his comments on every witness, his questions to his attorneys, his you know his thoughts about what was transpiring in the trial. And uh, um, you know, I had to rush back into the book and like take those notes and then. You know, which nobody had seen or thought of before, and then like find ways to piece them into it so that uh, you know it had like that thread. But it's like a baker, you know, like you you got some, you got all this stuff, and you're starting to put it together, and you're about to put it in the oven, and you go, "Oh crap, I forgot the sugar." <laughs> and uh, you know, luckily, I found it there at the end. But uh, um, what, you know, it, what makes it, me even uh, really go crazy is. When you go through all that work, cherry picking, as Mark said, the stuff from the, uh, you know, what's going to work, what's going to fit in the narrative, what's not going to bore people to tears because of the legalese. Someone will write a review. They just put a bunch of trial transcripts in the book. They just put a bunch of court records in the book. I want to go to their home in the middle of the night and strangle them for a true crime story. I've seen that. Um, there's a there's this guy was famous... Uh, New York Post writer, and he'd written about the cop, corrupt cops of the 80s in New York. Right. And he'd done two or three really pretty good books, uh, or at least bestsellers. So I thought, oh, man, i gotta get got to get these books. So, you know, he searched search and search for them, find them on eBay, pull them out, start reading them, get in his...
two of his main books on corrupt, corruption in New York City, the last half of each one is just him literally transcribing court documents and putting them in a book. I mean, that's, that's just lazy. It, I mean, I can go and find court documents. Mark can go find court documents. Burl, you can go find court documents. That's not what people are looking for when they read these books. They, they're, they're looking for, you know, you just find those documents, but then put them into context. You know, give, give context. Don't just, like, write out what the cops said. Write out what the cops done and add something to it. Give it some meaning. Oh, I, 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 I got to add something here to what uh, what Frank was saying about those 80,000 pages and finding something. On uh, one book I was doing, there were like several appeals to the state Supreme Court and some mistrials, et cetera. So I go to the state uh, Supreme Court records department or whatever, any track tapes, and tell them I want everything. So I had to get a, a big van to load up all the boxes and stuff. And I took it to my apartment, which was on the uh, like third floor, the big bay windows. And it was summertime, and it didn't have air conditioning. So the windows were open, and the wind came up. I get up in the morning. Wow, we have a There are papers apartment. all over the living room from the different piles, <laughs> all mixed together, which would seem horrible except the juxtaposition of the different files revealed things that no one had noticed before because everything had been compartmentalized. You know, all of this information over here, this over here, this over there. But when the wind blew them all together, I picked up two disparate, you know, pieces of information and I went, wow, this explains <laughs> why after the murder, such and such and such and such which had never been brought up before. So sometimes having a, uh, a mess, <laughs> you know, where things getting mixed up or like he found with the, um, with the legal pads, you could come across some just real great revelations by, by doing a lot of research and having some unique approaches to it. Excellent. So the chair, you were telling me about the papers being messed up right now. I was thinking my, it reminded me of something. I thought you were going in another direction. What direction and was it, that? It, no, I'll tell you. Um, I, was, I was doing a story on a, uh, as a reporter. I was working on a story about a woman who'd been shot by the Los Angeles Police Department uh, and murdered. Too. And the, the shooting was awful. It happened on the rooftop of the St. Vincent's Medical Center. And um, it happened around Christmas time. She was uh, shot in the back by the police and shot after she had gone down. So this is, this is, it is a black woman. And it's happened, that's the Rampart Division, oh early 90s. Um, horrible, horrible uh, event. And her three-year-old son was there to witness it. Oh, my God. So, um, you know, the course of, like, writing about this story, uh, at that time, you could go to the coroner's office and, uh, you know, pull a coroner's report within weeks of, of, uh, of the event. And I did. I went to the coroner's office, got the report. I had the, we took it to my office. We did a story on the coroner's report revealing some of this information about the shooting. And I went home that night, left the coroner's report on the front seat of my car. Ah. I went inside, 
went to bed, got up the next morning, and my car was gone. Um, um, it uh, turned up about a week later, a block away from my house. Everything in there except that coroner's report. Fascinating, yeah. <laughs> so I imagine that uh, you know those are the sorts of things that that happen when you find that when you get documents that people don't want you to um, reveal. Uh, and um, I, I always assume that you know there's a LAPD that took my car. And relieved me of the documents and, you know, um, left my car block away. Very nice one. You know, um, they could have left it farther away, like in the bottom of a lake. <laughs> well, they, yeah, I'll tell you what. What they did is they, they then, t after they, quote, found it, the sheriff's department came and towed it and charged me impound for a car that had been stolen by their friend. Well, that's amazing. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> That's what they call. That is the face of corruption in LA County, boys and girls. Oh, wait till, wait till I tell you all about Rosamond, California. Uh, nothing. Got a, got, <laughs> I got a hot one there. So you guys are working on a new book, and without That's giving it away, there yeah. is a basic premise to the overall story. Yes. So uh, the question I have is, you, is, when you look at material you're going to write, not necessarily this specific material, but you're working on something. Do you have a uh, an, a goal in mind when you go into it before you start writing, or do you let the the research direct the way the story is going to go? Hmm. Um, I think you got to let the research direct the story. The uh, you know. I very much want to think there's a certain outcome in this story, um, but I don't know, and I don't want that to um, affect the way that I interact with people that I have to interview. Um, and there's there's a guy, so Bill, I'll just tell you this: there's a guy that's on the peripheries of this story that knows most of the major players, mm -hmm. and um, I've been trying to get a hold of him for months. And this morning, he sent me an email. Oh. Says, hey, give me a call. So I give the guy a call, and I run through, you know, everything that we're working on, you know, you know high-level sense. And uh, I, I, I said very clearly to him, like, hey, listen, I'm not taking sides here. I'm just trying, right now, I'm just taking notes. And so he said, great. Well, why don't you, you know, let's get together and talk it out. So... That's you know, you have to you have to have an open mind. Yeah. If I if you take these interviews and you approach them with, I know what happened here, and I need you to fill in the blanks. Well, uh, you know that's like that's like calling the uh, the Georgia Secretary of State and telling them to find eleven thousand votes. <laughs> yeah. You, you know you you just you just you just it's outcome shopping and and uh, and you know Bo and I are. You know, are really are trying to put this story together, and in, in the in the very broad sense, the story is about a guy arrested for a murder, who, you know, um, was convicted of this murder largely on the testimony of 
informants who may or may not have been involved in it at some level. Uh, and the informants were, you know, acquitted. So this is the this is the Perry Mason, uh, what you call the Perry Mason uh, narrative, right? Yeah. Uh, you, ha- you know, you have somebody who's in the bucket, and, and uh, you know, it's up to Perry Mason to figure out if the, if the, his client uh, is in fact guilty, or. Did the butler do it? Did, or did Colonel Mustard do it in the... Uh, in the rectory. Yeah. Interesting, in the documents that I was pouring through the other day, and I enjoy reading, <laughs> to try to remind myself what we're writing about, uh, there's an interview with one of the, uh, the characters, one of the informants, by a police detective. And I was amazed at the density... None of the questions, but of the res- the respondent, he didn't seem to be the brightest guy, or he was really scared or really nervous because he couldn't answer, couldn't give a straight answer to any question. And the detective getting more and more aggravated with him as the interview goes on. He says, "Come on, you can answer this question." He finally gets fed up. Just answer the question. Did you know such and such before you called? You know your cousin, your uncle, whoever the hell it was. And then he asked him, what did you hope to get out of this? And the guy just up front just goes, well, we hoped it explains what could have been the motive for the murder in the first place. That hadn't been touched on, that hadn't been brought up to the uh, to anybody. It would have negated the, the guy who, supposed, who got arrested for killing him. Uh, and he says it right to the detective. Of course, the detective doesn't have the context to put it into. But it's right there in the interview. And I'm going, wow. Sometimes you can find things. This is a great thing when Frank was talking about doing cases that have some age to them. Because then you have that different sense of perspective. There's been some time for it to marinate in its own juices so somewhat. That you can, you can, you have more of an overview of it if it's from like 85 or uh, whatever instead of you know, uh, 2018. Yeah, that is, I mean, that's true. That's, that's what it is. You have that overview. I mean, that's what we're, you know, that's what we're finding with our LA 85 podcast is that, you know, we can, which by the way is a podcast that's, uh, you know, all, all available. You can search it and find it. But, you know, that's what we're finding is it's a lot easier to like look at things that happened then and, and find the perspective of them in you know, in, in much more context than if you're just you know narrowly focused on something that happened yesterday. I mean, we, you know, best example is we really don't know what happened in the Capitol, uh, you know, a couple of days ago. I mean, I think we all have ideas about you know what led up to it and, and how those people um, think and what you know and what they hope to accomplish, but. We don't know like the backstory, like who were their accomplices, what what did they hope to gain, um, you know why did this you know why did it, at this particular moment in time is this relevant to them? And I think it's going to be you know twenty or thirty years before we know the depth of the you know treason and sedition that actually went down just a couple of days ago. Um, I was shocked now. by the T-shirts some of these people were wearing. Referencing the six million Jews, and that's a good start. 
you know, that died in the Holocaust, things like that. A lot of mm-hmm. Nazi propaganda T-shirts. It, it it looked to me like you have you had a person at the top who was who was genuinely asking his followers to go to the Capitol and let that the cap the people inside know that they were out there and they're angry and that things have to change. And then just like. Uh, the riots on the other side we saw earlier in the year, a very small percentage took it as an opportunity to take it further when they shouldn't have. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I mean, but like I say, we see we're all interpreting it, but we don't have the facts and we may not have the facts in our lifetime. Like, you know, I mean, like the whole JFK thing. You know, just think about how. I guess we kind of know what happened, but do we really know what happened? No. I mean, it's going to be another 50 years before we find out. Oh, of course. We know exactly what happened. The grassy knoll came to life and killed him. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, but see, the fact that there's that, the fact that we can, like, you know, we can dismiss that theory or accept that theory or examine that theory is, is sort of proof of what I'm saying is that without all the facts, that time offers, it's impossible to, like, know what really happened. And, I mean, while we know that the pres- we saw the president stand outside and exhort these people, and we saw Rudy Giuliani tell them that it was combat, but how, you know, the other stuff that happened, like the Capitol Police officers posing for selfies, moving the gates aside, um, you know, uh, standing, standing down uh, and arresting journalists, uh, instead of, uh, you know, uh, uh, protesters marching through the halls with the Confederate flag. Uh, well, there's a lot of shit that went down that we're not going to know about. That's mm. yeah, very questionable stuff. Yeah. So the, um, one of the things that uh, doing the show I've, I've uh, uh, identified is that the material and true crime that you write about is often quite horrific. How do the two of you deal with the emotional side of of this research and the burnout potential that goes with it? How do you how do you separate yourself from the writing and yourself from the emotion that that is on the it's going to be on the page? Hmm. Uh, it's a tough question. Yeah, it is. Uh, one, you know, I'll tell you uh, one time. When I, again, when, this was a story from when I was a reporter. Uh, I got called out to uh, a train track where a, a teenage kid had been uh, run over by the train. And, uh, um, you know, the, the cops, the, the kid was still there wrapped up in the wheels. And it was horrific, awful, awful. And um, the cops... Uh, you know, said they, they thought he'd been walking down the, the tracks with a walkman on and that, you know, he didn't hear the train coming or, you know, didn't hear whatever. Or he was committing suicide. It could have been that, too. Um, somehow I got his name and uh, went back to my office and I called his parents. And they, they lived close to where the newsroom was and I, and I, I said, do you mind if I come over? And they said, no, come on over. And now this is, you know, this kid's killed on the way home from school at 2.30 in the afternoon, and I'm sitting in there 
at their kitchen table at five. Mm, wow. And, uh, um, you know, they, you know, then I probably didn't really know as much about human nature as I do now, but, you know, I'm sure they were still processing. Well, they must have still been in son. shock. Yeah. And, you know, and it, it um, and, and you never, and like those things, they state, the thing is, it's like, you can't ever prepare for this is what I'm getting at. You can't prepare for this. You can't prepare for the, the shock of it. Like seeing him and then being at the kitchen table where this kid had breakfast, you know, eight hours before, or talking to his parents who had no clue the day was going to end up like this, and uh, and you carry it with you, and every little bit of that uh, leaves behind a scar, but it also gives you like an ability to you know um, divorce yourself um, from what's happening. Uh, I, I think we, it's a built-in thing that we have. I, um, I, another thing uh, reminds me of is um, in the mid-90s, I was on a ride-along with a, a cop in Monrovia, California, and uh, <laughs> this guy had called me up to challenge me. You know, like, hey, you read all this stuff about cops, and you don't know what it's like. You ought to come out on a Friday night and see the things that we really deal with. Okay, uh, I'll come out. I go out Friday night, I'm sitting with this guy, we're driving around, we're smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee all night. Nothing's happening. So finally, we get to, you know, the, the end of the, you know, it's like maybe eh, 11 o'clock at night. And he, he says, let's go to dinner and then I'll take you back. He says, I'm sitting, out, I'm sitting at this taco place and he tells me, says, hey, I'm really sorry, you know, I thought you'd get a sense of the kind of stuff that I do. Uh, and there's always action here. There's always something happening. Sure as hell, we're sitting there. Call comes in. Uh, the shooting in progress. He goes, well, that, you want to go? Yeah, we'll go. Well, we're the first people on the scene of what turned out to be a double homicide. And it was horrible. Like, And, and um, I had to go into the crime scene with this officer and clear it because the, the backup was several minutes away and they wouldn't, the ambulance was going to stay back because shots had been fired. And there was possibly uh, um, a baby inside the house and, like, all this other stuff. So we go in. There's people dead. Uh, and, uh, man, it was so bad. And uh, the emotion of the of the minute is gone. You just fucking no, no emotion at all. It's just, like, survival and what happened. Right, what, what the hell happened here? And and uh, every time I think about one, and, and oh, so so you know, they clear the place. There's three people shot, and a dog's been shot, and uh, one of them is certainly dead. And so we go down the morgue at this hospital because they didn't take him to the regular morgue yet. And we're looking at the guy. You could see where he was bent where he'd been shot, and you know how you, in your ear you have that little piece that's not your earlobe, but it's like right before the opening to your ear, yeah. you know, I hold your headphones in? Yeah. The bullet went through there, and um, like a piercing almost, you could barely even see the hole. It was like a 22 guy scrambled his brain. Wow. Oh, boy. You keep that stuff with you anyway. Yeah, there's so much more we could have talked about here. Yeah, we might have to do a part two in the future here. 
We should kind of revisit right. this later. Thank you very much, Frank. Thanks, for Frank. Coming. Thanks, guys. Okay, well, uh, we'll keep doing a wonderful job on this book in progress that you're working on so hard. Hey, Pearl. <laughs> yeah. What's next? What's next? Magic Ben Allen, the Demons of Decadence, live from the Light of Lounge. It chose me, I didn't choose this city. I 